welcome to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. Over the next hour, Ingrid and guests will discuss how historical trauma impacts the human experience and how we can move towards collective healing. Now, here is your host, Ingrid Cochran. Thank you for joining us today. This is Ingrid Cochran, your host. Uh, Again, this is History, Culture, Trauma. Today, we're really going to get back into our focus on Women's History Month. And so, as I said in the past, uh, the entire month of March is dedicated to the women creating a legacy in the Worldwide Paces Movement. Today in this episode, we will talk to Elaine Miller-Karras. And um, before we move on, I definitely want to introduce my co-host, Matthew Portell. Hey, I am so glad to be back, Ingrid, uh, after our first run, and you asked me to come back. So uh, glad to be here and to talk to such an amazing pioneer uh, in this work as Elaine. Thanks, Matthew. And again, Matthew is our new director of communities with Faces Connection. And so we're we're definitely have, you know happy to have him on as a co-host. And uh, today, again, we're talking with Elaine Milkaris. Uh, she is an author, lecturer, consultant, radio show host, internationally recognized trauma therapist, and a social entrepreneur. She is the co-founder and the director of innovation of the Trauma Resource Institute and founding member of the International Transformational Resilience Coalition. Uh, She is the author of Building Resilience to Trauma, uh, the Trauma and Community Resilience Models, uh, and she is committed to bringing accessible, affordable interventions, cultivating individual and community well-being based on neuroscience and the, bio- the biology of the human nervous system to our world's communities. Her models have been introduced to over 75 countries, uh, and she's also presented at the Skoll World Forum, Resiliency 2020 and 2021, and the United Nations. So please welcome our our guest for today, Elaine LaCaris. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so honored to be on your podcast. I know you're just launching it, and I just wish you much success. Yes, thank you so much for being here. And we have a couple of questions for you, uh, but again, I I do want to remind everyone that this is about um, your legacy. So I'm going to shoot it over to Matthew. He has some questions to get us started, and we'll jump right in. Elaine, we, again, uh, reinforce how, how honored we are to have you on, on this podcast. And we, uh, we've been asking all of our guests the same few questions. And so we want to ask, what is your story and how did you come into this work? We're always, we're always amazed on how everybody finds their way. So what's your story? Well, my story, I guess would, I would say, comes where there's a number of different tributaries that I'll, I'll, I'll touch into, is I um, was born in San Francisco, California. My mother um, and grandmother immigrated to this country from El Salvador, and my father was um, a farmer from Montana. It was a very interesting um, <laughs> union, and sometimes I would wonder, how did these two find each other? Because they could not have been more different. But I really grew up in this very rich um, cultural family that was really led by my mom. And so the the Latin culture was very much influenced um, everything in our family. And we um, 
soon after I was I was born in San Francisco, we moved out into the, one of the suburbs um, of San Francisco. And I was very fortunate to have kind of this intersection between, um, you know, my dad's vista about the world. And he was, um, my dad was from Montana and he had been, he had served in World War II. And so part of that was also the vistas that come from a very different lived experience and from, from my mother. Um, and so growing up in this family is that there was a lot of trauma. My dad had a drinking problem and I adored my father, but when he drank, he wasn't the same person, which I think is many people's experience, right? He did eventually at the end of his life, get into recovery. And I, um, I, we would joke about, he would say, yes, I'm now an AA devotee. Um, so that was a really great healing for our family. But I think my mom, I really had, she had so much Bunk, you know, to be. She was a very young person when she came to San Francisco, and um, she came with that program where they they needed people to work in the shipyards in San Francisco. But if you knew my mom, I can't even imagine her picking up anything that would have to do with a ship. So soon after her arrival, she got a job pouring coffee because she didn't speak any English at the St. Francis Hotel, where she met my my godmother. Her name was Elaine, who taught her English. She was one of the uh, waitresses. So, I, you know, I tell you that that brief history because it's so um, important for what came from growing up in this family and the trauma that also existed in this family that also has to do as I reflect and I've learned about the family history is that, um, you know, the Central America was colonized by the Spaniards and that 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 um, history put a mark on, I think, on any family, um, but especially since families were made up of their indigenous um, roots like my great grandmother was Magdalena, and she was from Guatemala, and she was a Mayan. But then she had a relationship with the Spaniard. They never married because the Spaniard would never have married the indigenous person. They had all these children together, and one of them was my grandmother. And so, but when my mom came here, there was kind of this thread of shame, and that shame lived out in our family in our family history, right? And so as a young person trying to make sense of all this, there were certain components of that that were digested by me. So as I became a young person and started having my own ideas, I was drawn to the field of social work. I was really good in a crisis, I have to tell you, growing up in my family, because there were times my dad drank too much. My, my, um, um, my mom said, get the kids, the younger kids in the car. So we would get, I, would, I was responsible as a very early age, right? Getting the kids in the car. Um, but it really, it really taught me something. And I mean, and my, you know, and I think about this with my parents, I don't, I have such forgiveness for them both. I can say that now, it wasn't always true, but I knew that they were both were doing the best that they could considering all the things that have happened to them in their life. But I think that really propelled me. I was good in a crisis. I wanted to help people. I wanted to help people out of suffering. And so um, social work was one of the avenues for that. But even before social work, I was very intrigued about childbirth. And childbirth is a very big part of the kind of the foundations of who I am professionally. So I became a childbirth educator and a doula. And so that meant I taught young mothers, families, about their bodies and about birth. And it wasn't about necessarily natural birth. It was about how their bodies could work um, during a time of great pain during labor and how they could work with their bodies. So it's not very, it's not dissimilar to what I do with the community resiliency model that I'll talk about in just a second. Um, but that was really informative that I could be a guide to people in great pain and help them through a difficult 
process. And that at the end, you know, when it all went well, they'd have a beautiful baby, but it didn't always go well. And that was the first nonprofit I started was helping after neonatal death of Santa Clara County. So I met um, a number of parents whose babies had died who were in my in my classes. And at that time, this is in the 80s, there was hardly anything for parents who'd have that kind of traumatic experience. And I was fortunate to meet a number of, of, of women primarily and later men that really shared with me their suffering. So we started the support network. And from that, I became a passionate advocate of wanting to change hospital systems. And so by that, that I said, well, how can I do this better? And there was a social worker at one of the hospitals. She goes, you know, Lynn, you could get paid for doing what you do. And you're a volunteer, all these volunteer programs. I said, oh, my, her name was Susan Bennett. And I said, well, you know, I was thinking about going to social work school, but I really went with a purpose that I wanted to, I really wanted to change hospital systems regarding the care of women and families and how people were treated sometimes not so well in hospitals when the outcome wasn't the outcome that you know we all hope for when we have a pregnancy and we have children and and then there you when and also there was the extra added element of you know growing up in a family where you know my sometimes people would make fun of my mom because she had a very thick accent or they would turn to she they would turn to me and say what did she say and my mom was very feisty. She goes, don't talk to me. Um, she, she goes, don't talk to her. You need to talk to me. And I really, I, now I can look back at it because I was embarrassed by that, right? Because she would get mad at them. But now I really realize as an adult that she was really trying to protect me. And she was standing up for protecting me as a child. And I really appreciate that now. But I think that I, I chose San Jose State University to go to because they had a mission of also reaching the, the Latin community of California. And so all these things intersect about wanting to become a social worker and change the systems of hospitals, but also being dedicated of wanting to serve the what we now call the Latinx community um, of of our of our world. So um, that was kind of the foundational roots of how I first started. There's so much there. I really resonate with you, with your story, especially. It, I feel like it really connects with mine as well. Those um, childhood experiences that make you want to do a certain type of work. And so um, I definitely came to my understanding of paces through my family's experiences. And then also some work that was um, around juvenile justice, where I saw a lot of African-American children um, in our justice system. And, and so I decided, oh, maybe I should you know, get paid for the things I'm volunteering for. <laughs> so <laughs> same yeah. thing, Ingrid. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a notion. Yes, that would be good to be able to have some kind of sustainable yeah. income. <laughs> yeah, there's and, a lot of freedom in volunteering. And there is yeah. a lot of freedom in volunteering. Because you can always say, no, I'm not going to do that, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Exactly. I mean, I, I think something that you said that resonated with me is uh, approaching a year. My, I actually lost my mother on April 10th. Oh, and I'm so sorry. when you said um, going through forgiveness because they were doing the best they can at the time, yes. I have I've been on this journey the last couple of years, even before her passing, where I had to grapple with what you just said. And yeah. I think. A lot of people do that. My parents, I, I, I grew up in a very conservative, extremely conservative home um, that I've had to process. And so 
that just hit me right here in the chest, Elaine, when you said that, because I think we all come to this work in a variety of ways, but I think our backgrounds and our experiences as kids is the conduit to get us to adults to say, we need to do things a little differently, or we need to change experiences for other people. And and I think it wasn't always conscious either. It's like it, it was it, almost an unconscious propelling to saying something's wrong that needs to be changed, right? It was, it was uh, you know, what makes some of us having that, um, that passionate commitment to want to be change makers. I didn't always look at myself that way because I just said, well, that's just wrong. We can't do that. We need, we can't put the moms that just had their baby die from a stillbirth on the same floor with a, and share a room with a mother postpartum that has a living baby. There has to be a different way to do that to help support her during, you know, the terrible loss that she was experiencing. But, you know, when we say this too, you know, sometimes you, you shared a, a term that you call, you called yourself, Matthew, I'd love for you to share that term. What the, the disruptor that, what was that exact phrasing of that? I think all three of us on this podcast <laughs> can identify with being unapologetic disruptors. <laughs> Yes. So I definitely have been an unapologetic disruptor, but that doesn't mean that everybody likes you when you're an uh, right. And so, and someone, you know, I, I do like people to like me, but some, I'm sure there's people out there going, Oh, I don't, I know her. I, she came in and said, we should do blah, blah, blah. And I didn't want to do that. Right. But I think that sometimes it's like saying the emperor has no clothes. You may be saying that you're doing X, but it doesn't seem like it's playing out that way. And that is something that I think I have done, including in the way of looking at at creating mental health strategies that are different, that aren't necessarily delivered by, and I'm a mental health professional, I'm a licensed clinical social worker, but I also realize there's limitations that not everyone will seek out a mental health provider if they're suffering from the traumas that they've experienced in their life because they're not oriented that way. And as one person said, I'm not gonna share my business with someone I don't know. (laughs) So why would I do that, right? But if they're suffering, how do we reach more people in terms of um, helping people to um, experience their well-being in in a way that they can start turning the volume down on some of the reactions and symptoms of trauma that have plagued us all? Well, and I think, too, one thing that you said, I heard, I actually just read a quote, and I think it's from like a college football coach. I don't know. He said something like, if you're an innovator, a leader, and you want everybody to like you, you need to stop and sell ice cream. Um, That's it, right? This work is about pushing the envelope. It's about using historical context and what has been traumatic over time in changing the systems. And so I think it's part of it. Uh, And when, when you hear you know, positive adverse child experiences or ACEs or social worker or educator, people want to go ahead and think, oh, you know, you're, you're just, no, 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 no. We're fierce people who want to change and shift paradigms. Um, and, and you're, you're one of those people. Well, and I think part of that too is, and I think, you know, how could we not have all been affected in the last two years from the pandemic, from, um, the amplification, the illumination of what has happened to, to African-American individuals in our country with after the death of, of, of George Floyd. 
And I think that one of the things that really, um, I was talking to someone else about this today, is that if we don't say the truth about what the experience of history is, that not only our own history that we can learn through healing, but just the history, I felt like I am in my 60s. I did not have any place in my uh, my learning, and I, and I have a master's degree. I never knew about the Black Wall Street in Oklahoma, that that had occurred. That to me is a travesty, because if we can't acknowledge the trauma that's happened, and that's, I think, what I've learned um, in the work that I've done over the, all these years that I've worked, we have, to, we have to say what the truth is. And if we can't say the truth is, then we are going to be victimized by systems that were created long before any of us were born, that we are seeing them play out in oppression and in creating more trauma for not only the population in the United States, but all over the world. Yeah, thank you so much. And then we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk a little bit how about how you feel about the ACES study in, in particular, and also your legacy in this movement. So we're going to cut to a, a very quick break. Thank you guys for joining us. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to History, Culture, and Trauma with Ingrid Cochran. If you have questions for Ingrid or her guests or want to share your story, join us on the show at 866-472-5791. That's 866-472-5791. Now, back to the show. Here again is Ingrid Cochran. Thank you for joining us. Um, before the break, we were talking with Elaine Miller really about how she came to the work of trauma and resilience. And so, Elaine, I do have a question about how you felt about the initial uh, ACEs study when you first mm. heard about it. Well, that was an amen, hallelujah moment for me <laughs> uh, because I was working as a teacher of family medicine at a large county hospital in California called Arrowhead Regional Medical Center. Now it was called San Bernardino County Medical Center. And so that is the county hospital. So my job was to train young doctors and, and educate them about behavioral sciences. And mm-hmm. so, so many times I would co-attend with the medical faculty as the behavioral scientist and the young doctor would come in and say, oh, um, you know, patient X 
insomnia, um, gastroenteritis, whatever. And then they go, okay, um, Ambien. And then I, my job was to say, um, well, what's happening with that person? What's going on in their life? And they go, uh, I don't know. And I go, well, okay, go back in. These are some questions that you can craft very easily. And so they'd have to go. And then, you know, the beginning when they first met me, they go, oh, why did we have to do this? Have to talk to the social worker? Because we were, we want to be real doctors, right? So um, so then they would they would go in and go, oh my gosh, there was a drive-by shooting or, or her son was just sent to Iraq. So there became the context of the trauma that was actually propelling them and was a catalyst of sending people into care. So I was already working in this kind of idea of um, how this was in the early 90s. How can I help them understand? And I was learning about some of the biology of trauma at that time. But when the ACEs study came out, Oh my gosh, this is showing us that when you have four or more adverse childhood experiences, that your chances of having pulmonary lung disease, heart disease, diabetes, the whole plethora of the different things we see in primary care had the, had the origins in childhood trauma. So to actually give some scientific evidence that came out of Kaiser Permanente and came out of the CDC was, I think, um, one of the life-changing moments, not just for me, but I think the world of public health. Because myself as a social worker, did I know that those things happened? I could say yes. But people don't believe social work, <laughs> sadly. Some people do, as much as they believe, okay, this is a scientific study. And so when I could then start teaching the residents about ACEs, then they started seeing the connections because, you know, you could understand, I'm not saying this to be negative about physicians, but someone would say, oh, it's all in her head. Well, then that minimizes that person's experience and it actually shames them because it's in their physiology, it's in their body. And if we can't make those connections of the mind-body connection, then I think that we're lost. But to me, the, the, one of the most, um, and the, one of the most, uh, the, the statistic that stays in my head that if you have six or more, your life span is cut by 20 years and that your chances of being an IV drug abuser is something, what is it, 4,200 times greater than people who have a, a score of zero. So that means that these behaviors that have happened that plague our society had the origins of trauma. And to me, that means we're talking about systems change, which to me is why I love PACES, is that we say, how can we illuminate adverse child experiences to change public policy, to change school systems, Matthew, you've been involved with, because how many children get punished because they're maybe having a reaction that has to do with something that's happening at home that gets played out in the play yard, right? So all those kinds of things that, oh, that's the thing. So these behaviors are sometimes a way to try to turn the volume down in the distress that children and then adults are having in their life. Because if you're stuck in, let's say, what we call sympathetic hyperarousal in the models that I've created, we call it the high zone. Um, that's intolerable. And you want to calm yourself down. So if you don't have skills that are in your hand that you can use at any moment to be able to be in calmer states, what are we going to turn to? Alcohol, drugs, um, different kinds of addictions that also then have their own trajectory that I can say are distress and despair. And so, you know, and also, it also made sense of my family heritage, right? That these things that happened to my dad as a child where he had trauma, his father was an alcoholic, right? So you know that it didn't start with him. And that's where I love that you call this, you know, part of the name of your show is history, because we can't not look at that history. But ACEs to me 
um, really demonstrated that there was a public health emergency, not only in the United States, but all over the world that we had to pay attention to. Yeah, I think uh, when I really thought about what we wanted to focus on with with the podcast, the, the history is so important to me, you know, because of intergenerational and historical trauma that uh, people often don't know why they do the things they do or, you know, you know, there's a, a there's a big question mark around their actions. And often it is around their their family cycles. And then when we get to the cultural piece, it's around issues like race and poverty. Uh, and also, you know, in here, you know, what does it mean to be American and, and things of that nature that are all driving that. So that, you know, that really resonates with me. And that's also why the um, what you said resonates with me. And but that's also why the study itself um, resonated with me. And but I'll, you know, on, on top of that, when I came to this work, I came into it from historical trauma. And my my work in historical trauma brought me to the ACEs study. And so I, I was studying African-American parenting practices, um, specifically around um, juvenile incarceration and how it was kind of um, seen as a cultural issue or a parenting issue. And and once I you know, started studying and I found the ACEs study, then I made the connection that, you know, the history that we have in this country has really led us to this point and this makes a huge connection for me. And, and then I'm able to say, oh, okay, this is the the missing piece on top of the fact, like you said, people are more likely to give um, credence to science and scientific um, findings as opposed to a person giving their their own family story, unfortunately. Yeah. Yes, yes. And so I think that, um, so th- I think ACEs was important. And I think that, you know, remember ACEs, the, the initial ACEs study was done in San Diego, primarily middle and upper middle class folks with insurance and jobs. And that wasn't the population that I had in front of me, right? Or, you know, some of the places where I'd come from. So I was really um, thankful that in the city of Philadelphia, right, that they did, um, they added some extra questions about what happens you know, in terms of inner city violence, what happens if they added a number of, of other things to the ACEs information that also then included more people. And I think that was really an important part of, of learning more because then you say, oh, well, it's not just four. You could have you could possibly have 15 adverse childhood experiences, right? And then what? And then how does that play out in society? And so, in this is where it's all interconnected, and that's what I also think is important about Aces. That you know, sometimes people say, "Well, oh, that's only in that neighborhood. We don't have that here," and that's a bunch of baloney. Actually, <laughs> that's maybe not the most delicate way to say it, but um, we see it across the board. Um, in all socioeconomic classes and all religions, all races, that if you have adverse child experiences, but if you have the extra added of, let's say, like you're saying, Ingrid, um, if you have uh, the embodiment of slavery that, and also what carries out after that's never acknowledged historically in truthful ways, then what happens with that? Um, and so I think the other thing about, you know, when you talk about my legacy, um, when I... I had with a couple of other people the idea of creating something like the community resiliency model. It really actually had to do with thinking about all these things and, so, and partly thinking about my, my dear mom. Um, I think she went to a therapist one time after the 1980 earthquake that happened in, in um, 
uh, San Francisco area because she couldn't sleep because she was really afraid that her building was going to, but she really wasn't a person that would have gone to a therapist to talk about her trauma because that you keep inside the family. And many of us come from families, and especially with a Latinx families, it's like you keep it inside. You don't necessarily go outside the family system. And so it was really occurred to me about the semantics of how we also talk about trauma. So you notice that the community resiliency model, which is the model that I've developed, I didn't put the word trauma in what it is. We talk about trauma. We talk about the brain networks and survival responses, but it's done in a way that is not about blaming, shaming. It's talking about this is a way we're all designed all over the universe that we have a nervous system. And because I've gone to so many places around the world, I'm so proud of this, where I can take these ideas and say, oh, after your earthquake in Nepal, so what happened? What are some of the reactions that you saw? We ask about what are some of the physical, emotional, what are some of the spiritual? Um, We ask these questions and you know that every place I've gone, whether it's Nepal, Tanzania, places in the United States, people give me the exact same answers. So here, and this is what I think about being someone that's trying to shake the ship up a little bit, is that in our mental health, we have disordered everything. We have a book called the DSM-5, then everything's a disorder. So then I'm thinking, well, gosh, if this is true across the, the world, that people have these common reactions, can we call it something else or say you have a common reaction to extraordinary events that affected your mind and your body and your spirit? And so people have cried with me all over the world when they go, oh, well, I'm not crazy, am I? No, I said, you're not. You had something happen to you. And I think for my mom, if she could have, she, she died before kind of my work exploded the way it has. But I think that um, she, if, if she was very Catholic, and if the priest would have said to her, Elsie, there is a, um, a class after mass, and you can learn some wellness skills that will help you and your family be stronger. She would have been the first person to sign up. But if you said, Elsie, we think you have post-traumatic stress disorder from what happened to you as a child in person, she'd go, I don't want to, I'm fine. I am strong. And you know what? She was strong. And so, but you see what I'm saying about how we semantically have the systems of mental health that can be experienced in a very pejorative way. And so that, you know, look at, I get very excited. If you could see me, I'm moving my hands is that I get passionate about that because if we can shift that and say, oh, okay, this happened to me. And that doesn't mean that you still might not need a mental health professional. I am one, right? Or a psychiatrist to help in some things. We know that there are brain conditions like schizophrenia, but notice what I said a brain condition. Yes. Right. And that's different than saying, oh, you have a disordered brain because then you become a disordered person and then you carry the shame of that along with you. Yes. Elaine, don't get me started. I'm a psychology professor. So we definitely disorder everything and and, and how much of what we believe is a disorder is just normal human behavior um, and normal human responses or or being adaptive. Uh, And so, yeah, I definitely resonate with that. Um, Matthew, I know you have one more question for Elaine and then we'll we'll get into some more conversation. I do. But before I have a question, I have to be honest and say, like, Elaine, your hands are going and you can probably see me. (laughs) 
what you said about if 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 the priest would have said during after mass that this was happening when i tell you that that hit home for me coming from the background that i have and my mom and growing up in church the idea that people struggled was so taboo that nobody talked about it. And it was a struggle my mom dealt with until her passing at the age of 72. And I would have those conversations, mom, we all struggle, it's okay. You can't pray that away sometimes, you have to have this connectedness. And so when you said that, it's so true. And I think that comes down to systems and the way things are structured, even with religious context that there are structures that do have those pieces. So yes, I, I, uh, I felt that in real deep into my heart for sure. So what do you, what do you think is next for you and, and this movement? What do you see the next to be? Okay. So I'm very excited about this. And this is, um, and when I say the excitement, there's almost like, um, I'm also sorrowful that I have to say what this excitement is about, because I have been working now in um, communities, not only with the community resiliency model as a prevention um, methodology, in terms of if we have boots on the ground of people that know how to restore their own wellness, but also um, I really believe in teaching natural leaders of communities. These are the go-to people that people go to first anyway, and it may be the minister. It may be the person who lives at the end of your street that everybody goes to when they're suffering, right? And if you can equip these people with the ideas of wellness skills based on neuroscience, not only their own compassionate nature that they already have, can then additional skills can be added. And the community resiliency model right now, we have research going on at Emory University, Loma Linda, different places in the in the country, University of, of Alabama, um, so many different places, University of New Mexico, Children's Hospital Los Angeles, is that there are statistically significant reductions in depression, anxiety, a reduction in hostility indicators, and improvement in the indicators of well-being. And guess what? You can learn that from a natural leader. It doesn't have to be a mental health person, right? And in my ideal world, I think about a triage system where you have really a a whole cadre of natural leaders that are the boots on the ground. And then they're equipped to saying, oh, I think this person needs some additional help. And then there's a mental health system made up of licensed professionals that can provide that extra element of care that comes with a lot of education that I would never, ever minimize. And if we could do it in that way, do you see how many more people will be able to cultivate their well-being to turn down the symptoms that are so common because of traumatic events. And really, it's based on neuroscience. Because if you're in sympathetic, hyper-aroused states and your your foot gets stuck on the accelerator of that, we know that you get depleted as time goes by because of all the different hormonal responses that happen naturally. And then you get depleted in what we call the low zone, fatigue, depression. And then you never have this sense that we call the okay zone or the, the, the zone of well-being, the resilient zone. But if you can learn to read your nervous system, and this is really to me the hallmark, interceptive awareness. I'm This is like a banner that I have now. Um, It is a game changer for children, for adults, and people of all backgrounds. And that's what really excites me 
um, in the world today is to bring this information forward so that these tools are available for every single one of us. If we, we, you know, how many times, you know, you don't have to raise your hand at this, but in Grigan and Matthew, that sometimes you, you weren't showing up as your best self. That happens to me. It happens to me now. Sometimes I go, I had to apologize to someone saying, oh, I was snarly yesterday. I, you know, I apologize for that. I was a bit out of my zone and I wasn't using my skills to get back in. But even to be able to come back to apologize in the past, that may not even been existence for some of us, right? If we were not our best self. So I think if we can equip people with these kinds of skills, it can change the way we walk through the world. It can change our mental health and our physical health because we know through ACEs, right? That they're intricately connected. You know, I I am excited with you, um, and, and I want to say that the the school that I left, we were talking about those parasympathetic states. We were teaching kids the power of breath and movement to calm their nervous systems. Kids get it; it they get it if we just explain it, and parents get it. I get it. Everybody, we just, and that's the power of the information age, right? Is getting this information out. And, and I, I, I know that people that are listening can't see this, but I'm going to show it to you, Elaine, because I think you'll appreciate it. Um, this is a, a note that I keep with me that was written and I dated it, um, 2018. And I made a mistake with a student um, and I had to go back and apologize. And this student, she said, I said, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have raised my voice is what happened. Um, Will you accept my apology? And so similarly to my wife, she said, I'll think about it. Mm. And she left and went back to class. So I gave her time and space, which I understand. That's how that's how uh, forgiveness works. Right. Um, And I showed back up and I said, uh, her name is Shanti, and I have permission to say her name from her parent. Um, but Shanti, I said, did you think about it? She said, Mr. Porto, I left you a note in your office. And it literally just says, I accept your apology, Mr. Portel, and then with her name and a heart. Yes. I keep this with me because we have to forgive ourselves a lot of times. We have to forgive, ask for forgiveness of other people. That's what this work is depth and and rooted in, is going mistakes have made, they're made. So what are we going to do to change the mistakes and how are we going to make them right? And so all of that just got me really fired up as I thought about Shanti, uh, who taught me a lot of lessons uh, when I was a principal. Yeah, and we're in a collective trauma. So I haven't been my best self for probably about two years now. So uh, it's just a reflection that it's very, very needed at this time as we're all grappling with this large scale um, pandemic that is has us all um, dealing with allostatic load and everyone is kind of down and dealing with the, the physical aspects of what it means to be in a collective pandemic, which is, you know, um, lower bandwidth and sleeplessness or sleeping too much, uh, not eating enough, eating too much, you know, all the different ways that, you know, um, stress manifests. And so I think that, you know, what you're talking about is very timely. And I also really appreciate kind of your, what we call them in, in my um, consulting work with a, a hospital here, uh, Vanderbilt Medical um, Center, they call them trusted messengers. And so these uh, people who are 
are uh, in the community, already embedded in the community, that people are already trust, um, arming them with what they need to to understand PACE's science and be able to um, be kind of the bridge between the community and then the mental health um, services that, that can that can help the community is so important because groups that have had um, experienced intergenerational trauma and historical trauma, they do have this issue with shame and stigma when it comes to getting help. Uh, and this is rooted in, in lots of different things. It could be religion, like Matthew brought up. It could also be, um, like I said, historical trauma around um, Latinx community, African-American community, indigenous community, where there's just, there's a lack of trust uh, in interacting with any type of institution to include mental health and physical health. And there is this understanding that, you know, we handle things in house so that we do not yes. uh, bring others into into our business. No one else should know our business. Yeah, no one yes. else should know our business. <laughs> That's right. Um, be it religious, the, the shame and stigma that come along with that or just pushing back on stereotypical views. So, um, you know, because I'm black or brown, you believe that I'm less than or already. And so if I tell you that I'm I'm hurting or that I'm in need, then it's just going to reinforce the stereotypical thinking that you have about me already. And so this is something that, you know, these these trusted messengers, these these people embedded in the community uh, can definitely help with the, to build a bridge in that way. So I think that's a great idea. Yeah, I love that trusted mes- messenger. I love that that term. Well, you know, I think there's another thing that has been really important to me and I'm really, you know, um, so grateful to, to both of you for allowing me to be here is that um, I, I have felt over the last um, month that everything I've been doing for the last 20 years have coalesced to the present moment. And I want to say, I want to, I want to tell you about this journey. And it's been a very profound, poignant, tragic, horrific journey, um, something that I never quite imagined I would be involved with. And part of that is because of the pandemic and learning how to do things on Zoom, that honestly, two years ago, I wouldn't have had the same bandwidth to do that. So in um, uh, a number of years ago, uh, a man named Brendan Ozawa Silva, who uh, was charged by His Holiness the Dalai Lama and the, the people at Emory University to create a curriculum for schools. It's called C-Learning, Social, Emotional, and Ethical Learning Program. And um, Brendan had become a community resiliency model teacher, and he was working in the prisons in Georgia. And when he was tasked to being the head of this project, he called me and he said, Elaine, I want you to come and talk to the people at Emory because I think your work needs to be part of it, that the nervous system and the biology needs to be integrated. So I went out to Emory and I met with the people there. And so they decided to, to have my, my work be chapter two of this curriculum that is, by the way, free that anyone around the world can access. So I was very fortunate to be invited to India um, for the launch in New Delhi with His Holiness was there. And it's such a great thing, you know, to be in the presence of this amazing spiritual leader. Um, And we were there at the launch and there was a time when some of the group had to go and have lunch with His Holiness and I was in a different pod. So they said, Elaine, will you do something with the group? And I said, okay, there's, you know, there's hundreds of people in this room and it was, you know, nobody else was back yet. And I had to, so anyway, so I said, okay, everybody, let's get up. And I said, 
I'm going to invite you to sing along with me. So we sang, if you're happy and you know, I clap your hands. I mean, these were all educators, Matthew, because you know how educators like to sing. Oh my gosh. There was, there was such a liveness. I mean, I felt such joy in front of the group. And so after that, this group of people come to talk to me and it was led by um, Alexander Elkin from Ukraine. And Alexander said, Elaine, you must come to the Ukraine. And I said, okay, Alexander, I never thought about coming to the Ukraine. So he told me how they had created an organization called EdCamp for all the teachers in Ukraine and that they had worked with the government of Ukraine to have sea learning be integrated into their school systems. So I said, oh my gosh, this is so, this is so wonderful. So a few months later, sure enough, they call me and say, would you please come to help us launch EdCamp in Ukraine and the Sea Learning Program? So I did, I went to Kharkiv in 2019. And so in the years since then, I have had an ongoing relationship with them. I just spoke at a conference they had in January online. Um, but then the war, we knew that the Russians were amassing at the border. And I said to Alexander, I said, Alexander, you know, you haven't been been um, trained yet to be crim teachers. You're doing this through sea learning, but there's so much more that I we could offer to you. So in TRI, we decided, the Trauma Resource Institute that I co-founded, we decided to do a humanitarian teacher training program. So we were, we were talking to them about it and said, okay. And he said, well, let me start with 10 people. And the morning, literally the morning of February, February 24th, the day the bombing started in Ukraine, we had a pre-scheduled meeting to meet with talking to them about getting the materials translated into Ukrainian. So at that moment, they all came. We were there from Tri, and we and they said, can you do a pivot? Can you provide webinars for us about the skills of the community resiliency model that we know work because we've seen it through C-learning? Because we want to offer this to all of our teachers and anyone who wants to come and listen to this um, through the EdCamp Facebook page. So literally within 24 hours, I mean, I, I'm still, that's why I can't even believe it. So when I talk about the legacy, I am so proud of this. So on the 25th of February, we did webinar number one. So every single, we did four webinars teaching them the skills. And then after that, they said, um, Elaine, would you would try be willing to do daily community support meetings. So people who've learned the skills can come and we can ask you questions as we are now living in this war. And so we said, we're in. So today is the 24th. So we've had 24 days of daily meetings every single day that we meet with our Ukrainian colleagues. I have to tell you that it has been something I never imagined because of Zoom, because of Facebook Live. And you know, there's so, certainly there's lots of criticisms about Facebook Live and we get tired of Zoom. This would have been impossible. I have gone to so many places after disasters, after conflict. I have never gone in war as people are actually experiencing it. And so they have posed questions to us every single day. I'm afraid of being raped and tortured. What do I do? I'm thinking about throwing myself off my balcony. The, the, I, it's becoming less, but I'm worried. What can I do? I'm, our school system, we're going back and we're going to be doing virtual teaching. How do I explain to children about what's happening to our country? Um, we have been able, with our teams of trauma experts, um, who are psychologists, social workers, marriage, family therapists, and 
our natural leaders to be on these calls, to respond to their questions in real time. And honestly, a couple of days ago, our translator, her name is Natalia, um, she's been in the Western part of Ukraine and she's beginning to translate and all of a sudden her eyes go up and we can hear the sirens. I'm in California. And she goes, I have to go. I said, Natalia, get yourself safe. So then five minutes later, she goes, okay, I'm safer now. I'm in the hallway. Although it's hard for me to imagine that the hallway is safer, but you're away from windows, right? In terms of the explosions of the glass. She continues to translate for us. I mean, I am like in awe and in amazement. But then at the very, very end of this one hour section, one of the people that was online with us, she unmutes herself and we could see her face and she was in terror. And she goes, there, there's explosions. Now we did hear from her the next day that, that her father was injured, but the rest of her family, including her children were okay. But you see what I'm saying is that we can work with these skills of wellness. We can't change the fact that the war is going on. But we asked yesterday, I asked a question, I go, it's been a month since we started. Is there any reflections? And one of the women said, I can be present. I know this is happening, but I have these skills now that I can use to be present. And when we talk, Ingrid, about the allostatic load, you know that if they're just on high all the time or so high, then they go into low, which is really happening there right now. But if they can have respites of feeling their well-being, and then the conversation is connected to what we've been talking about. Her name is Anna, and Anna has been with us every single day except the day that she got her and her child out of Kirkiv to travel to another part of Ukraine. She said, I've really been thinking about my family. And she said, my family have the stories from World War I, from World War II, from the famine, which I did not know about then, from the famine, where millions of people were killed or died because of the famine. And she says, and now it's inconceivable. So now I will have a story. And, but she said, what I'm, and then she said, but we have well-being inside of us. We, we are resilient people in my DNA. We are survivors. And you could just see the pride. I mean, she took a deep breath. I mean, and then every single people in our person in our Zoom room, you could see that there was something that was uplifting about knowing that in their also their heritage, not only is there the transgenerational trauma, but there is the transgenerational strength. And I think that's what we've been highlighting. That's what I want. I'm hoping my legacy will be that, yes, you can lean into the suffering, but you can also lean into what also has been what in the heck has helped you get through these really difficult times. And so that's and then she said and she goes, and now this is my daughter is living through this. And then my daughter's children will know about how we have this legacy of of strength and courage in the people of Ukraine. Oh, what more could you say? It didn't come from me, it came from her, but there was the echo of that. And so if we can do that in real time, I think this is a paradigm shift. I think if we as communities, psychologists like you, Ingrid, teachers like you and administrators, if we can say, how can we do this in real time when the storms and tragedies of life are happening? And I also, and I want to say one more thing about this, because I'm also very much aware, knowing that our time is quickly leaving us, is that we have children in the United States right now that live in a war zone every single day. 
And that to be aware of that in terms of how can we also bring skills like this in real time to help them if we can't change that neighborhood, if that violence is there, how do we help them with cultivating that well-being so their allostatic load is not so high that we have the tragedies of what happens with, with adverse child experiences? So to me, that's a hopeful message. And that's one I hope that that um, that this continues and these ideas continue. And I just have so much gratitude for the amazing Ukrainians that I've met over the last month that I feel like I have a growing family and I never imagined being in war and living in California. It's, it's a very strange bubble to come into it and then come out of it and then come back into it again. Yeah. That is one of the most positive aspects of living in this time is how connected we are um, through social media and um, technology in general. And I think that it will be helpful um, as we move forward in our shared human experience that we have these tools, even though they, they, do, they do get a bad rap. Uh, and but one thing that really stuck out for me is, you know, I've done a lot of work in collective trauma in the last two years, obviously, um, really knowing that the biggest um, thing to to consider during a collective trauma is the meaning making process. Uh, and that if we can help people to go through that process of meaning making during a collective trauma, then they are able to stave off that difficult legacy that comes along with the collective trauma. So um, when you were sharing that story, that made me think of how important it is to be there to help people to process and make meaning so that they can, instead of falling back on um, just the trauma, that they can definitely see their ability to survive, their strengths, um, and definitely be able to understand that that is also a legacy, that that is also That's being right. passed along through generations. That's right. So, and I, th I think the word is really called the, the survivance, intergenerational survivance. Um, so we are, um, we're closing now. We want to thank our audience for joining us. Matthew, do you have any closing words for us? You know, I, I did. And I think it comes down to that word that you asked about earlier, Elaine, and that is that unapologetic disruption, right? Because I think sometimes we can see wars and battles and oppressiveness that look like tanks and guns, but a lot of our kids in our schools and a lot of our communities are fighting a hidden war that sometimes isn't even that hidden. And so I think sometimes we've got to pull back and, and, and remove the layers of the onion and say, really, let's have these conversations. And that comes with right now we're in the midst of history making where we're about to have the first African-American woman who's potentially going to be a Supreme Court justice. And I watched it yesterday and it brought me so much anger and yet pride listening to what happened. So I think we we have things that are happening all over the world, uh, and yet we also have things that are happening right here in front of us that are that are it's history. Um, and Elaine, I have shared your group with the with with the Ukrainian educators that I'm aware of as well, and I hope they were able to join. And so I think the closing thought is thank you for your work. Thank you for the legacy that you've already created and the legacy you're going to continue to leave on not just 
um, not just here, but in the world. Um, your mm -hmm. impact has been great already. And it has just really, like you said, it's just now coming to fruition. So yeah. thank you for spending thank time you. with us. Thank You're you welcome. for teaching us. Thank you. Because I feel like I've learned a lot. Well, yeah. and, to, and also I just want to say my closing thought is remember the one from the one there is the many. So each one of you can be that person who changes up what's happening in your community and your family and also, you know, within yourself. So thank you so much. What a hopeful <laughs> message. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the show today. We hope we have helped to give you a better understanding of trauma and how historical trauma affects the human experience. Join us every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. We wish you a beautiful week.